Welcome to the Anthropology and Business Podcast, where you'll learn about the many ways anthropology is applied in business and why business anthropology is one of the most effective lenses for making sense of organizations and consumers. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in advertising, marketing, consumer behavior, organizational culture, user experience, and many other roles, you'll learn firsthand what it means to do business anthropology and how the work differs from academic anthropology. We'll discuss issues like the pace and depth of research in business, our visibility and influence as practitioners, and what we can do to build our brand. We will also focus on the value and impact of our research in business so that we can help business leaders understand why they should be hiring anthropologists. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. I'm Matt Arts. I'm here today with Michael Powell, cultural anthropologist, design strategist, UX researcher, independent researcher, working with numerous firms. Uh, And so while we uh, oftentimes talk to some people in tech or today with large corporations, today's a good day to drop back to to an entrepreneur. So Michael, thanks for coming on. And would you mind just telling everybody how you got interested in anthropology? Yeah, thanks for having me, Matt. Well, that's a long story back, uh, way back. Uh, I really got to remember that. Um, uh, I guess it did start, you know, when I was in college, I was a art school dropout and, uh, um, and then went to, um, university of Illinois and kind of found, found a way, um, searching for something interesting, creative, and, um, you know, science-like, I guess you could say, um, you know, back then when I didn't really have a clue what anthropology was um, and just started getting into it there. It was a really great department at the University of Illinois um, and some really great uh, teachers, scholars, mentors who got me just really engaged with the subject um, enough that I was led to go to graduate school um, so from Illinois, took some time off, and then I, I went to graduate school at, at Rice University um, in Houston. And, uh, you know, I studied cultural anthropology there um, and got my master's and PhD there um, and had a chance to work at, uh, with some really, really wonderful people, um, brilliant scholars. Um, my advisor was uh, George Marcus, who... Uh, Probably, a, you know, if you're not in, into academic anthropology, you might not know who he is, but um, he's kind of a big figure uh, in, the, uh, in the anthropological world, uh, co-author uh, of the edited volume, uh, Writing Culture and Anthropology as Cultural Critique. So back in the 80s, um, Rice Anthropology was uh, kind of a, at the forefront of uh, a sort of critique of, of anthropology. Um, and then later, uh, George Marcus was also, uh, known for developing a multi-sided ethnography concept. So a lot of experiments, uh, were, were going on a lot of kind of innovative thinking, uh, new ways of thinking about anthropology. It was a very exciting kind of department. Great. Thanks. And so I guess there's two things in there I'd like to follow up on. First is, um, 
you know, I know you made the joke about art school, but just out of curiosity, what art were you interested in? Have you sort of actually continued pulling that into your work in any way? I think I have, yeah. Um, at the time, it was very much about visual arts, drawing and painting. Um, and it was just something I was kind of good at, you know, talented at, at drawing and things like that. I was, was a kind of a, a visual um, thinker. And, you know, it wasn't until much later um, that I started to learn more about um, contemporary art, um, things like performance art and conceptual art that used a lot of, uh, whether it's theoretical underpinnings or just explorations of ideas, um, diagrams, different ways of um, creating structure for artwork um, that I just found really exciting. And in some ways, many ways, um, it, it did kind of help inform the way I might approach uh, working with designers and thinking about the design of experiences, um, or for that matter, working with you know organizations and thinking about um, culture in general. That there's kind of like this underlying um, structure of things, flexible, dynamic, potentially very creative, that can be expressed um, in a lot of different ways, and so. There's that. And the other thing I always come back to is the way that, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of research out there that treats humans as, um, I don't want to say numbers, but treats them as relatively straightforward and tries to kind of fit them into categories to make sense of things. And I think, you know, when you're, when you're around art enough, you, you kind of learn that humans are very creative and very unexpected. Uh, that they're they're never quite doing what you what you want them to do or or think they should be doing and um, and that's what one of the things that I, I was I've always uh, loved and enjoyed about anthropology is just talking to people listening to people trying to understand um, why they do things uh, the way they do things and so now to come back to Rice University uh, you said. You know, doing some pretty innovative things, critiquing anthropology. So, you know, what did that teach you, and and how has that impacted your work today? Yeah, yeah, because the work I did there um, is not connected <laughs> to what I did subsequently. I was um, I was studying for my dissertation research, and and what I wrote about, uh, I was studying the uh, the emergence of uh, transparency uh, initiatives, freedom of information law, and anti-corruption policy in, uh, in Poland. Um, what's, what is interesting about that is, you know, it's, it's, it's about the circulation of a concept. So these concepts around, for example, anti-corruption policy did not originate in Poland, but they came to Poland circulating through many other um, institutions, uh, many other countries, uh, global institutions, and uh, not uh, NGO networks, um, and then a certain kind of space of, of discourse um, that sort of brought these ideas here. Um, and so, you know, 
trying to understand, um, you know, not just, I'm not just going there to understand who these people are and like, what is, what is Polish about corruption, for example, uh, or the solution to it, um, ways to combat it, but really about the intersection of discourse and intersection of uh, cultural currents um, that kind of make up the sort of heterogeneous uh, contemporary world. Um, so th that, that, you know, that kind of way of approaching a, a project um, has consistently um, kind of informed um, a lot of what I do. Um, I wish I could be, you know, even more so, uh, but, you know, sometimes you take the projects you're given. Um, but, you know, at, at times I do find ways, that I do see it kind of crop, cropping up in, in, in my thinking um, and how I design research or um, how I approach analysis um, and a lot of other like little details. I, I do see it keep continually um, popping up. So you said, um, yeah, you made the, the kind of comment there about the, the projects you're given. And uh, I think we all appreciate that some are maybe more rigorous and robust and satisfying than others. And that's, you know, that is what it is. But um, I want to use that maybe as a, to hear a little bit about your career journey, especially into, you know, practicing today as, as, as you know, essentially being an entrepreneur, having your own research practice. Um, you know, I appreciate there are some stops along the way, but do you mind just sharing a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a circuitous path of sorts. I, uh, after, uh, after graduate school, I moved to Los Angeles and, um, and, and there weren't a lot of, uh, you know, there, there weren't job postings for, for anthropologists or ethnographers, really. Um, and there, you know, for that matter, it was, it was kind of a different environment in terms of uh, uh, set or even like perceived pathways, um, such as, you know, user experience world. That was not a, a, a job posting that I saw uh, back then in 2006. Um, so I, I started to kind of, through networking, accumulate some people who, uh, who were doing some projects, including some uh, ethnographers like uh, Ken Erickson at Pacific Ethnography, who's based in Los Angeles, um, uh, Chris Derazette and, and Helga Wild at Water Cooler Logic. Uh, Chris was in Irvine, uh, which is near Los Angeles, um, and strung together a, a a number of projects um, and kind of figured some things out for a little while. Um, and, but uh, again, it was, it was a little bit challenging at the time. And so I was searching around for full-time employment and I came across this design firm in LA called uh, Shook Kelly. Um, and they were a strategy and design, but really an architecture firm um, that, that had a component of what the, of their practice that they did some research um, some strategy, and then that would inform uh, the design of, of spaces and customer experiences. Um, and so I, I spent a long time there, probably uh, going on like almost 12 years there. Um, I was the only anthropologist, and um, I can't say that even like inside the firm that they t totally understood what ethnography was or what it could do. Um, and so I just had to be very flexible and open um, to try to find um, try to find as 
as many ways possible as I could uh, to do research, um, to do cultural analysis, and to bring that kind of um, ethnographic lens into the work that we were doing. Um, and it, it really varied a lot um, by project by project. Uh, but I did end up designing a, uh, or helping design I could, uh, a lot of grocery stores, <laughs> convenience stores. Um, we did restaurants. We worked with uh, brands in, in higher education, um, uh, urban districts, uh, financial institutions, motorsports, uh, and, and different kinds of mobility. So it was a it was a very broad array of different clients, and it was just really interesting to to get involved in that kind of strategic work. Um, and we would often work with you know, like C-suite executives on um, shaping strategy um, and helping them rethink um, rethink what they what where their business was going. So this, I mean, it, it was it 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 made me very flexible. Um, and, and kind of have to fit into, uh, you know, whatever project came about. Uh, but at the same time, it, it would really expose me a lot to um, how business works, how a lot of organizational cultures work, and how they think. So being an environment, you know, which maybe doesn't fully understand, you know, what you do and the value you bring, what were the kind of creative ways you went about helping them, you know, or, or helping yourself in a sense, find research projects? Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> um, <clears throat> you know, one of the things I, I would often do, uh, because, for example, we would work with uh, a lot of grocery store chains. That was probably half of our business. Um, and when they would come to us, it, it was a little bit unclear how, how we would approach um, the actual research to inform strategy. Um, and I would try to string together as many relevant threads as I could, including, you know, some, some of this was more formal kind of business, um, such as positioning, kind of more classic traditional marketing stuff. Um, but then I would really spend a lot of time in, um, you know, from the, from the very outset of any um, client engagement, not just, uh, not just talking with clients, but really approaching it like an interview, like an ethnographic interview. And so every interaction, I would take notes just like it was an ethnographic interview. And I mean, nine times out of 10, by the end of the project, you know, as we were kind of uh, developing this strategy, um, because the research was not the product, the strategy was the product, that what I would develop was a kind of, uh, call, call it almost like an ethnography of our internal culture. Um, and so that became a key component of, of how I would kind of bring value. Another thing is that because we had so many clients in a similar industry, we could, I could kind of accumulate uh, insights around food culture and food culture trends over time. So, you know, we bring together positioning, uh, organizational, internal culture, um, and then uh, food culture, where things are going. And then also, you know, we would go to sites, we would go to new places and try to understand the kind of culture 
uh, food culture in that marketplace vis-a-vis -vis other competitors and things like that. So it's bringing like a kind of ethnographic thinking, you know, a la uh, Jay Hasbrook uh, to, uh, to all of these sort of dimensions. And that, that would help inform the strategy. So it was never upfront that, you know, hey, we're doing ethnography here and that's the value here. Um, but clients were very aware that, hey, you have this cultural anthropologist on the team. Most of them didn't really understand what that meant, but <laughs> they did see and, and they could sense that this was a strategy that was very meaningful and also very much attuned to who, who they were what the organization was. So my boss would like, he's great at, he was great at uh, colloquialisms and would call it like, you know, you don't want to build them a, a race car that they can't drive. Um, you want something that fits. You know, so it was all about fit. Could we, could we fit something, but then at the same time, could we, within that fit, create something with like a spark to it that was, that was really unique and exciting. And that's where you kind of set things up for designers, especially and kind of frame the site of cultural production, places where you can create something new, um, unexpected, hopefully idiosyncratic, but then also relevant and valuable at the same time. So it was kind of like a, a triangulation of sorts that we were sort of searching for. So speaking of fit and positioning and sort of tying it back to, you know, you now being an entrepreneur, um, how have you gone about trying to position yourself in the market and you know has that changed are you seeing a change over the last few years in the way you essentially are selling anthropological research services so yeah about about five well six years ago now yeah i moved from los angeles to to houston um not totally by choice but <laughs> It's turned out well, um, uh, and uh, <laughs> that's another other story. Uh, but so coming to Houston, it's not not exactly a hotbed for ethnographic consulting or or ethnographers. You know, most people don't really know what this uh, what this is. So I kind of feel like I'm uh, step taking a step back in some some respects. Um, but I, I suppose I've I've always kind of um, found those those spaces interesting, where you really need to um, challenge yourself to think about um, what can I do, where where can I find something going on, um, and who's talking about who's talking about the, these these projects, these types of projects that might be of interest. So you know, using networking to find others who are who are out there. Who are doing some interesting things, um, and um, that I mean that that's been a major pathway. Is just talking, um, and I'm not I'm not like on the scene networker. Uh, I'm much more of a introvert, um, and uh, but I I try to use that to my benefit and try to get more en deeper engagement with the people that I do talk with, and, and just try to get a uh, an understanding of where they're at, what they're looking for, what, you know, what, what, you know, what does the market bear, uh, or what are the project opportunities out there? Um, so for example, 
I'd spent a ton of time working on grocery stores. So it would seem obvious that, okay, well, I'm going to be here. Uh, I'm going to be looking for ethnographic opportunities, uh, research opportunities. So I, I should, you know, find the, find the grocery stores. But, it, it, you know, sometimes you go in this one direction and, and there's just kind of resistance um, or there's lack of interest. Um, and you just have to take that as a signal. Um, and try to try to like slow down. I know I have this intention. This is like what I want to do or what I think I should do. But, you know, there's pushback um, or there's just some friction there. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's best to go where, uh, <laughs> where people want to work with you. You know, uh, you can't force them to, to work with you. That's just not going to work. Um, that, that's not going to work out. Um, so that, that's kind of how I started to sort of get the gears uh, moving, um, starting off with a, a few uh, smaller projects with some colleagues. Um, I worked with uh, uh, some people that I'd known for, for quite a while. So, for example, uh, uh, Tara Schwegler and uh, Jenia Espy, and they're in uh, uh, San Antonio and have a, they had a, 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 this a relatively small consulting firm called Red Squared Consulting. So I did some work with them. And then uh, another colleague actually all the way back from graduate school, Cecilia Bailly, um, she was starting a, a firm in Houston called Culture Concepts um, and found a, just this really brilliant uh, year-long ethnographic research project. Uh, and, and brought me in uh, to, to work on that. So, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily take much to kind of get things rolling, um, but, you know, it, it does require um, uh, searching out those opportunities and, and also, I think, a bit of luck. Yeah, as always. Yeah. Can you speak to, you know, are you primarily trying to, to be in the field or are you taking on remote work? And, you know, what have you sort of learned, you know, through that process? Yeah. You know, initially I was thinking that it would be something in the field nearby. Um, I was also looking for, for some things happening in, in Houston. And there are actually some, um, uh, some user experience uh, positions available here in Houston. Um, uh, it's the gas, uh, oil and gas, petrochemical capital of the world. Um, and it was really fascinating to learn that a, a company like ExxonMobil, for example, considers themselves a software company. Um, so they tend to outsource all the actual, you know, the drilling and, and, and what those guys do. Um, and then there's, there's just a lot of engineers who are running software. So um, and they need constant improvement. So, so there are those opportunities around. Um, and and the, these first projects, I was uh, finding things that were a little closer, uh, closer to home. Um, it wasn't really till the pandemic that, you know, everything went remote. Um, and in some ways, uh, for me, that, that opened up a lot of opportunities um, because it didn't matter that I was in Houston. Uh, that that wasn't a drawback. Um, if anything, perhaps you know it was, it was more interesting that I was here in the kind of the middle of the country, and um, it's a very diverse place and a very um, 
uh, you know, just a, just a different, different way of looking at things. Um, and so I did, I did tend to start to find, um, more opportunities, uh, as a result, uh, and including more remote work. Um, so I, I did start to do a lot more, uh, remote interviewing, uh, remote research, um, and partners that, you know, I, I would never actually meet in person. Um, uh, so, so that was actually, a strangely beneficial uh, for me and my career pathway. Yeah, you know, from speaking with a lot of people now, say like through the podcast over these past few years, I've noticed how uh, there, there seems to be some changes happening uh, for, for most people, you know, maybe not for those who are sitting at the top of like research and big tech, but it seems like it is changing for many others. And so I'm curious, again, as sort of an entrepreneur in this space, you know, do you find that overall your projects are looking a little, you know, like the timelines are a little tighter and and there is less field work? I mean, I appreciate that, again, COVID changed that, but, you know, th- that just that the nature of the work is 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 just changing almost from like that old classic kind of more consumer research model with a lot of time in the field, multi-sited, sometimes even international, long ter- time horizons, more longitudinal to you know, much more rapid research that's a lot of times tied to software and you know tied to sort of sprints. And are you seeing anything like that? I mean, I, I know that that's true. Um, but what's funny, you know, as I talk through this career trajectory is that I'm I'm kind of moving backwards in a weird way. <laughs> it's like the Benjamin Button moment that most people start. You know, they do a, a ton of research, little research projects. Maybe they grow bigger research projects, and then they start to get into more strategic positions. And that's kind of like a sort of optimal career trajectory in many ways for a lot of people. And in some ways, I'm moving opposite. You know, I was. I was working on a lot of strategy um, and not doing the ethnographic research. And now, now the opportunities I'm finding are, are much more, you know, I'm getting into the weeds of the ethnographic research again um, and getting into methodology. Um, I, I, I did a tutorial uh, last year at Epic on ethnographic interviewing, and I'm hoping to kind of turn it into a you know, a multi-session course uh, for them as well. So, so here I am, like getting into methods. I'm also launching into a project uh, alongside my my professional projects on ethnographic listening, um, and getting you know like closer to that. You know, the the way the method works and kind of the craft, the art and craft of, of what ethnography is all about. Um, I know. Um, from a lot of anecdotes, you know, and, and hearing from a lot of folks who've been around for a long time that, that it has changed. Um, but, you know, f- for, for me, uh, uh, in, in some ways, it's, it's kind of new again, um, which is, uh, I enjoy that. I, I find that exciting. Um, so it, it, is, it is limited. You know, we don't get to travel necessarily all around the world. Um, I don't think my family would like that anyway. 
<laughs> I wouldn't mind doing so uh, now and again if if the if the if the opportunity popped up for sure. I I do find you know, and 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 I I don't know if this is all ethnographers, but I find everyday life to be just endlessly fascinating, and so for me just diving into a subject you know it could be something that's happening right here uh, in my community in houston that i was just unaware of there's just like worlds upon worlds that are unfolding in front of you uh, and when you really get into the research i feel like you know there's there's a lot of travel to be had you know and just by just by the actual uh you know listening and exploration uh of these subjects so a little bit, uh, a little bit poetic there, waxing poetic on, on the value of ethnography, uh, but it's meaningful to me. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Everywhere is rich. Uh, everywhere is a field site, really. Yeah. So, you know, you just said there about you getting more into methods, and you mentioned a few things that you have an interest in. Are you looking to expand what you offer in any other ways, like that's even sort of somewhat outside of anthropology? You know, is there like other sort of adjacent disciplines that you're also interested in and seeing value in bringing into the practice? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I did mention just um, this project on ethnographic listening that I'm trying to trying to get off the ground in, in some ways. And um there was just something really interesting that had happened. I mentioned this project with uh, my colleague, uh, Cecilia Bailly, uh Culture Concepts. And um, we just found it, it. So the project was about Latino voters in Texas. Um, and there were over 100 interviews um, over the course of a year. Uh, and discovered that uh, in, in follow-up interviews that people were really um prompted to think and rethink political behaviors um because of the impact of of the ethnographic interview that listening to these people very closely and attentively kind of activated something and and helped them feel sort of empowered um so it's just really exciting to to know that because that was not the intention at all uh, completely um there's a really interesting uh, epic uh, Pecha Kucha from a guy named Paul Ratliff. He talked about collateral, collateral revelation. Uh, so this is from a few years back. And he just talked about sort of the unexpected, unanticipated sort of side effects of, of, of the work that we do as, as ethnographers. And, and that really struck me as a resonant here in this case. There's something in the way that we listen to others um, that that has an impact, and so it got me looking at other uh, other arenas, other places where where people listen, um, and asking that question of uh, what does listening do? What can listening do? Um, and it you know there there are some obvious benefits um, to being a better listener um, that most most people could could uh, benefit from um you know there there's some really interesting studies out there kind of demonstrating that people are pretty bad at listening and the problem seems to be getting worse um 
and probably in many organizations that you know you and I have worked at, you've, you've probably encountered a few people who didn't really listen so well, uh, and you kind of wish they did uh, listen a little better. But in addition to that, I mean, there's there's ways that uh, listening can kind of change uh, how we approach the world um, and how we approach others. Um, and so there's there's a, there's kind of an inner subjective element of communication um, that I find really interesting. So as just you know, just getting started on this, working with a um, a local uh, arts organization that has a kind of um, uh, they have a, a sonic pedagogy that is built around listening uh, and and promoting listening and in, in, and sound making uh, among kids. Um, and they work with a lot of underserved communities. Um, so I was hoping to kind of work with this group uh, to sort of look at and study listening a little deeper um, and, and see where that see where that kind of leads. Again, this is, you know, it's interesting because it's all a side project, but being independent, you know, more entrepreneurial, you do, um, you don't necessarily have to pursue <laughs> these kinds of outside projects. But, you know, you, you can find spaces or, or carve out spaces to work on these kinds of projects that, you know, how does it come back to professional ethnography? I'm not totally sure right now, um, but that's not the point yet. I feel like in the long run, it, it will come back in, in certain ways and kind of pay dividends. Great, thanks. And so um, if anybody was... You know, say somebody's listening and they're very much interested in running their own practice, um, regardless of what stage in their career they're at. Yeah. What would you What would you like to share that might help somebody else? Yeah, that's a good question because, you know, like I was saying earlier, the uh, when I when I completed my PhD, I was I was kind of moving in that that route initially, and then it didn't work out quite right. Um, you know that. It, it it does depend a lot on your your situation your context uh um for for where you live you know what your kind of uh financial stability is you have to be you do have to be realistic about uh those types of things um and it, as well as the opportunities that are um around you but what I, you know i do think that there's something very obviously very exciting about it it's also anxiety provoking uh, many times <laughs> between every lull of every project, you're like, oh, my God, this is all going to fall apart. <laughs> so I, I sometimes joke that I, you know, do this as long as I can get away with it, um, because what's really um, unique and valuable is that you get to kind of shape something um, in your own fashion. It's something kind of hybrid, heterogeneous, because, you know, as, you know, if you are an ethnographer and you study culture and you understand how subjects are produced through cultural production, cultural formation, you know that once you get inside of an organization, there, there's a shaping that's, that's going on. If you're going to succeed, you're going to be shaped and allow yourself to be shaped by that organization. And that's good and bad. Um, <laughs> when you are out on your own, you, I mean, it's, it's a little more of a self-organizing system. Um, and so you have to be 
um, adaptable and flexible and resilient, but in your own way. Um, and you need to kind of search out the things that work for you. So again, going back to fit uh, that we were talking about earlier, you know, trying to find the right fit for you and then as it fits in the market around you and wherever your, your, your kind of network uh, leads you. So it's just like all these potential forces. I'm always thinking and rethinking for better or worse um, what, what those pathways are because it's not clear uh, as best as I can tell. And I, I've, I've heard a lot of great advice from a lot of people and um, it, uh, it's a lot of, it depends, <laughs> you know? And you, you kind of have to roll with that um, and, 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 and just kind of work from there. It's a very roundabout way of offering advice. <laughs> well, it's a hard space, it's the reality. That's right. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, there could be, I mean, all jobs are tough, but, you know, and especially if you're going to start something, and especially if you have employees, it gets challenging. Yeah. yeah. Being an entrepreneur is not easy. Um, much harder than I. And you're in that same space. Yeah, I've spent my whole life in startups, um, you know, and founding, co-founding, you know, being involved in various roles through the years. Um, so yeah, it's... and startups are are another beast unto themselves. One of the things I did when I got to Houston, um, uh, there was a startup, uh, a mobile food retailer, like a grocery store uh, on a truck, and um, and uh, you know I, I I found out about it, met the guy, really cool. I mean, starting it literally startup in his in his garage. He built a, a cold storage room in his garage with a, a hijacked air conditioning unit. And, and uh, he was like, oh, you want to join the startup? I was like, well, this is not going to work. Um, but yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> and we just kind of dove into it for a long time, like about a year. Learning to drive trucks, um, we eventually got a bigger uh, space um and and doing everything by hand um and it it is it'll change you yeah it'll change it's it's a you know it's a hit or a lot of hit or miss um mostly miss um but it it definitely makes you kind of rethink um what you're going to be doing on a day-to-day -day basis and and how you're going to make progress um because it's it's not what you expect and it's it's a very bumpy road you also, so you have a talk coming up at Society for Applied Anthropology, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I put together a panel. It's an epic sponsored panel at the SFAA, um, which is in Cincinnati. Um, I think there's also an online component, but not our panel. Um, and it's about uh, ethnographic listening. So um, trying to explore this uh, subject and bringing together people who are interested in, in talking about it um, and have projects, uh, side, some side projects or interests uh, in the subject. Um, so, yeah, I'm just really interested in, you know, how to create some community around these, these types of conversations. That sounds interesting. Um, I was originally going to be there, but unfortunately, I'm not going to be now. Um, but I, I hope you have a great panel. Um, 
If anybody wanted to get in touch, learn more about, you know, what you're working on, where would be a good place? Yeah, of course, uh, LinkedIn is probably the, the easiest way. I also have a website, um, what's it, michaelgpowell.com. Uh, but you can find that through my LinkedIn. Uh, that's, a, that's a good place to kind of get in conversation. Um, I always love talking to people, um, especially in this, in this world, um, and just making new connections. And, you know, that, that's going back to what, what, what to learn about this kind of line of work is, is serendipity matters. If if there's something interesting, um, you know, you'd be surprised. You just uh, start start talking with people who share similar interests, and and usually good things come out of it. So I invite everybody to reach out. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Michael, thanks for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Matt. Thank you for listening to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. To learn everything you need to break into business anthropology and why business anthropology is one of the best lenses for contributing to business success, visit my website at madarts.me, where I cover many topics related to business anthropology and beyond. There you will find all the podcast episodes, blogs, and news. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.